Hey, it's Dave Breckenridge, and you're listening to 10.3. Today, I turn the microphones over to Stuart Thompson and Brian Platt in the National Post's Ottawa Bureau so they can talk about the latest in the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and definitely tell your friends about us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Conservative Leadership Notebook. This is our weekly show where we discuss the big stories, the small stories, and anything else interesting happening in the leadership race. My name is Brian Platt. I'm a politics reporter with the National Post. And I am Stuart Thompson. I'm also a politics reporter with the Post. So each week we're going to go through a few segments as we break down what's happened in the leadership race over the past seven days. And we're at the point right now where we're we're a week out from the cutoff for entering the race. We have four official candidates as we record this. Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, Leslyn Lewis, and Marilyn Gladue. But uh, we'll start off with the big story. And the big story this week really is the blockades that have shut down rail lines and other infrastructure in Canada. And the leadership candidates, pretty much all of them have put out some kind of statement condemning the blockades. We've only had one detailed policy, which came out today from Aaron O'Toole. But the leadership candidates are all staking out their position on this. Um, Why does that matter, Stuart? Why should we pay attention to it? Yeah, I think, well, this is the kind of issue that has seized, I think, the whole of Canada. It's one of those news events that if you talk to people just about anywhere, they'll know that it's happening. Uh, And those are actually pretty rare. So this gives a pretty good chance for the candidates uh, to do a little dress rehearsal. And, you know, you get to show what you would do if you were prime minister instead of Justin Trudeau. Um, That for Aaron O'Toole, that means we've got a, a pretty substantive uh, policy proposal here. It, it's a complicated issue. The blockades, there's no easy solution, as we are pretty clearly seeing. And it's also pretty difficult when you're government. But I guess part of the point of having a leadership contest is that we kick the tires on the people running, right? And say, you don't get to just be a bystander in this stuff. Now you have to think this through and tell us what you would actually do about it. Yeah. And in For the Conservatives, I wrote a story uh, yesterday just digging into the polling a little bit here and talking to conservative MPs, 60, just over 60% of Canadians think that these protests are unjustified. Uh, More than 50% of Canadians think that the police should go in and break them up. Most conservatives are pretty well on board with those views. It's kind of a no-brainer for the conservatives here. Andrew Scheer has been um, repetitive on this, and they've all stuck to a line. There's nobody in the conservative caucus who's getting squeamish about this position, um, despite a little bit of pushback and despite Scheer being banned from Justin Trudeau's meeting on the topic because of his rhetoric. But uh, if you are a conservative leadership candidate, it isn't hard to figure out where your party is on this issue. So the uh, the room for error here, there's not a lot of it. Um, it's not a tough one. And yet, it's not a tough one. Well, there's two things we're going to talk about uh specifically on this issue. One is Peter McKay's uh, ongoing battle against his own Twitter feed. And the second is Aaron O'Toole putting out um, an interesting and detailed policy proposal. So Peter McKay, who was last seen disputing his own Twitter account's um, portrayal of Justin Trudeau's yoga expenses and saying he didn't agree with that tweet and wishes that it hadn't gone out in the way that it did, 
you would think that he has fixed these Twitter messaging issues, but yesterday he put out an original tweet that was responding to counter-protesters taking out a taking down a blockade near Edmonton and um, tweeted uh, late Wednesday afternoon a pretty kind of robust a robust response to it. I'm just pulling it up here. It's now, he said, glad to see a couple Albertans with a pickup truck can do more for our economy in an afternoon than Justin Trudeau could do in four years. So that's kind of, you know, red meat conservatives will like that. It is a aggressive response. It got criticized for potentially encouraging vigilante actions around this. And then he deleted it late last night around 11 p.m. After it was used on the National Post front page. Yes. Uh, and replaced it with a series of late night tweets, setting out much more of a moderate and nuanced position on this, I would say, saying, you know, they had said the counter protest protesters said they weren't being violent, that they, um, you know, that this is he supports peaceful acts to remove threats to public safety, such as blockading a rail line. But I guess the question is, why didn't he if that is his position, why was that not clearly communicated from the beginning? Yeah, I, you can really see two possibilities here. And especially after the first gaffe, where you would think that Peter McKay probably has a policy now where he likes to see every tweet before it goes out. I mean, if I were him, I would probably institute some kind of policy like that. Um, so but I guess the two options here are he saw it and approved it. And then the kind of reaction that it got on Twitter gave him cold feet and they deleted it. Or there's still some trouble here with the people running his account don't quite know what he wants from his Twitter account. So both those things kind of present a problem for a leadership candidate. And the bigger problem here is that, you know, we are talking about Aaron O'Toole's policy and plan for the blockades. We're talking about Peter McKay's Twitter account again. It's not ideal. Yeah, it's baffling that he has had multiple struggles with just putting out a clear message on his social media feed that he then stands by. And as a front-runner candidate, you don't get very many... It's not going to be very long until you just aren't taken seriously on any of this anymore, and so you've got to get your first message right. Mm -hmm. And uh, you would think that that lesson was learned after the yoga tweet, but I guess the question is, how much does this matter? Is this something that just journalists pay attention to and regular members don't care about? How do you... Do you, do you think that this... What's your assessment of how much this matters? I think for journalists, it can often detract from our understanding of the issues and our understanding of what Canadians actually think, because what we see on Twitter is not representative of the populace in general, and sometimes it's actually the opposite of what people think. But the other side of this is that this is more of a management issue. This isn't so much about tweets or Twitter. I mean, if this was happening on Facebook or TikTok, I mean, it would be the same thing, right? The problem is that they don't seem to have a process in the McKay campaign to communicate in a way that they can stand by if people if people are mad about it. Um, that's more of the issue here than anything innately about Twitter. I'm normally quite sympathetic to the idea that Twitter doesn't matter, but I think I would pretty strongly come down on the second the second half of this that you put out, which is that this show this is a it's a matter of campaign messaging, and you've got. To, if you can't get that right, it's a sign of a bigger problem. Yeah. And that we should be applying this to how it would appear in government. I mean, if this was happening with Justin Trudeau's Twitter account, it would be a big problem. It would be rightly criticized, especially for such a massive issue. And I think that is how you kind of have to apply this. Okay. The second thing is Aaron O'Toole 
released uh, Thursday morning a pretty detailed proposal saying that he would pass legislation to essentially further clarify that this is these are illegal blockades and it is criminal to set up. The legislation would declare that major railways and highways and ports are critical infrastructure. It is a criminal act to block them, and police can clear those blockades even without a court injunction. I think that some of this is a little bit redundant. I think the it's not hard to get an injunction when you set up a blockade on a rail line. It's illegal, whether it's criminal, right? It depends. What, I think it kind of depends how you set up a protest or a blockade. But it is arguably already, you could apply some criminal code sections to some of these blockades. This basically just makes it much more clear. But it doesn't, you still get down to a, a question of enforcement, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of this is how you show what you believe about an issue, right? And a lot of campaigning, I mean, we just came out of an election campaign where it wasn't just that there is a policy, it's also how you present the policy. If you're going to plant trees, you're going to go out to a field and have little trees and a shovel with you. These are are sort of all wrapped up in the same thing. And I think that O'Toole has been looking for different ways to to show that he is sort of on side with the conservative base on this. And this is, as I was saying in the polling, this is not a tough issue if you're a conservative leadership candidate. Um, and as much as the policy is important, it's it's more about, I think, for this campaign, telling you what they believe about it. Yeah. And it shows that um, this will transition into our next segment here, but it, it shows that O'Toole wants to have a full plan that he can then go out and promote and talk to people. So our second segment is something we're we'll do most weeks, uh, where we just break down, we're calling it tactic of the week, or maybe gambit of the week. It's a tactical move that one of the candidates made that really shed some insight into their strategy. And we've seen two of these from O'Toole over the past week. On Thursday, we had the policy around what he would do on blockades. And last week, we had his policy around the CBC, and that he would effectively dismantle most of the CBC and defund large parts of it and privatize the TV operation. It was probably did not get talked about enough. I think that's probably because he released it on a Friday. But he, you know, it is, again, a very detailed policy proposal, but not only that, a red meat policy proposal, right, for for, yeah. for the membership. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like, this is a huge policy. It's got huge implications for the country and the media landscape. We should um, just make it clear. So he said he would defund the digital CBC operation, which is, you know, a gigantic operation for them now, and cut the funding to the TV, English TV in half, and eventually privatize English TV, but leave CBC Radio alone and leave the French language operation alone. Yeah. And... I, you wouldn't have heard about this if you weren't paying super close attention. And I think part of it is, you're right, that it was released on a Friday afternoon. I don't know the motivation behind that. Um, but it did mean that it didn't get a ton of coverage. And I also think, too, that this is a supremely awkward thing if you're a CBC journalist to cover. Um, because it essentially means that you're covering a policy that means the end of your job. And that's a tough spot to be in. And I would imagine that they're having some conversations in CBC buildings right now about how they would even go about covering this. There's a similar, but I mean, it's a less of a problem for us. Our company, Post Media, gets some money from the media bailout fund. It's not a huge 
part of the bottom line, but it is there. And there is some slight awkwardness to that too. And that's a, something that Aaron O'Toole also wants to cut. But there is, I think anybody who has spent some time at conservative events or talked to conservative membership uh, broadly, the CBC is a popular target for conservatives. There's yeah. a reason why O'Toole is doing this, right? Yeah. And I, you know, this is, you know, of conservative lore. Stephen Harper, I think, believed this. And I think to an extent he is right that he was never going to get any favors from the media. And that could be partly because of how Stephen Harper interacted with the media. I mean, you hear stories of Pierre Trudeau having long conversations with journalists and chatting with them like equals. And uh, that is not something that Stephen Harper would ever do. But he was coming from a place where he thought, these people are never going to be sympathetic to me. He thought that the media was mostly left of center um, in the sort of philosophical disposition of reporters. And I think on sort of a ground game basis, if you're talking to a conservative in Alberta, um, they don't have a lot of love for CBC News. We've had two now detailed policies put out by O'Toole, detailed red meat policies, and... and Presumably is the kind of thing he'll keep up throughout the campaign. I think mm -hmm. at some point we'll get a, a full policy platform from him. Yeah. Why is this? Uh, it's a, it is clearly a, a tactic that they are doing right now that Peter McKay isn't. So why do you think O'Toole is doing this? Yeah, I think partly it is just to um, show that they have a serious operation. And the O'Toole campaign certainly is that. They have a lot of people. They have a lot of smart people. And they are... The, I think the singular thing you will notice about them is that we have been talking a lot about Peter McKay's digital operation because mistakes keep happening. Aaron O'Toole has a very sophisticated digital operation, and the reason you know it's sophisticated is we're not talking about it. We're talking about policies that are being promoted on the digital operation just because it's running smoothly. But I think partly what's going on here is that they want to um, push Peter McKay into taking some stands. I think if you're Peter McKay, your ideal situation is that you are sort of running a front porch campaign where you are the front runner. You do a lot of work behind the scenes, getting people to vote for you, but you don't have to endure a lot of media slings and arrows. And when Aaron O'Toole comes out with a fairly nuanced policy proposal, people look to Peter McKay and say, what do you have? Right. I mean, the the point here is to push McKay uh, onto his onto the defensive, really, right? Mm -hmm. O'Toole has now released a plan. What's your plan? Yep. What do you think of O'Toole's plan? Are you do you agree with it? If you don't agree with it, why not? I mean, those are the questions people can ask McKay now. And the vice versa doesn't work because McKay has largely stuck so far to broader visionary statements. And it actually is kind of a good indicator for us because these races are really hard to figure out what's going on because conventional polling doesn't really work and polling members is kind of a shaky process. It's very hard to get good results on that. So often you can tell by how the campaigns are behaving where they think they stand. And if we see Peter McKay kind of getting a little more active on this stuff, then you can maybe take from that that he's getting a bit worried. Well, now close out the show by doing uh, a segment we're calling Inside Baseball. And this will be something we talk about e e each week that really try to pull back the curtain a little bit about campaign mechanics and things that you may not see if you're just reading the newspaper, watching the news broadcasts every night. I am, right now I'm getting ready to do two things. One is head to 
the Ottawa Senators game tonight because my Winnipeg Jets are in town and badly need to win this game if they're going to make the playoffs. And I have a sense of doom because the Senators are one of the worst teams in the league. And uh, I just feel like this is a trap. The second thing I'm getting ready to do, though, is head out to Niagara Falls right away for the Ontario PC convention. And that's because all of the conservative leadership candidates will be there. This is um, a policy convention. Most provincial parties do these do one of these every year, every two years. It is largely a gathering of provincial party members from across the province to debate the party's uh, policy directions and what the membership would like to see the party do. But it in this context, it's also a chance for the conservative leadership candidates to network and to promote themselves and to try to pick up more voters. Stuart, why should we pay attention to what campaigns are doing uh, when it comes to these conventions? Yeah, I think this is where it all happens. And I remember at the beginning of this race, um, when John Crosby died and there was a funeral out in Newfoundland, um, I was it, it's something that had never occurred to me until some campaign people were saying, and just, you know, conservative MPs were saying, keep an eye on what's going on at the Crosby funeral. Like, look at who's going there and, and look at what who might be talking to who. And you know, uh, something that never would have occurred to me is that this is the perfect place for campaigning because all of the conservatives are all in one room for a big reception. Um, they all know each other. They're talking to people in a region that they are looking for votes. And I, I think ideally, if you're a candidate, you're looking for influential people in all of these little areas where you're looking for votes because of we've talked about the geographical representation. Each riding gets 100 points. So each riding is equal weight. So if you can get out to a sparsely populated riding and convince some people to vote for you, it's a highly valuable thing to do. And then if you can get out and talk to some movers and shakers in the area, the people who are influential conservatives, that is also highly valuable. And at a convention, people from all over the are all in one spot, right? Yeah. And people highly motivated uh, members, if they're at a convention, they're pretty much by definition highly motivated so these are very yeah. important people to get on board yeah this is like a political nerd uh, christmas these conventions everyone's so excited to be there and to talk to each other and do networking and all that kind of stuff and at some of these conventions there was the nova scotia convention two weeks ago the la the leadership candidates all made an address to the whole room uh, on the floor that's not happening at the ontario pc convention but what they'll do at the at this convention is they have they're called hospitality suites you basically host people in a room sometimes a big hotel room, sometimes uh, some other room that you've booked with a lot of alcohol, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and you just, it's a chance for people to come and talk to the candidate and the candidate supporters. And you're trying to convince people to come on board yeah. to either volunteer for you, maybe even work for you, or at the very least vote for you yeah. and go home and spread the word. Yeah. And you know that all of the campaigns of all of these events circled in red on their calendars because this the twitter stuff is interesting that's where we get an insight into how they're managing their campaign but you are not convincing people with a tweet you're convincing people when you get them in a room and you both have a beer and you're talking over that and that that tends to be the moment when you win or lose a riding so i am heading to that i'll be there all weekend if you have heard this and see me say hi and uh, and next week, I'll report back on what uh, I heard and what I saw. And uh, then we'll talk about everything else that's going on. At that point, we'll be at the cutoff, so we'll know exactly who's in the race and who isn't. So uh, 
We will keep an eye on what happens in these final days of the opening phase of the leadership race and talk to you again next week. For Stuart Thompson, I'm Brian Platt. Thanks for joining us. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Stuart Thompson and Brian Platt. More from them at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.